You know, if we were to survey all the parables of Jesus, thanks Chip, what we would find is that all the parables that deal with nature, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, the various kinds of seed that we hear about, all leave us with a sense of peace and safety and order. Many of us came to church this morning looking for a sense of peace and safety and order. But whenever a person occupies the center of one of the parables, whether it be the unmerciful servant, the unjust judge, the rich man, several others, there is always this element of dramatic tension, conflict, doom, and downfall. Welcome to Sunday morning. And so it is here. The parable of the wicked tenants, and I use that not because Jesus has used it, but I use it because unfaithful tenants is a little too soft. And we know that there's evil in the world, right? There's wickedness in the world, and so unfaithful seems a little soft. So we're looking at the parable of the wicked tenants. It's dark and disturbing and disorienting. We can see the evil in it. And through it, we may even be able to see the evil in our world and perhaps even in ourselves. And what will we do when we see it? How will we respond? Will we drop our defenses and respond with gratitude for God's improbable, reckless, immeasurable grace? Or will we tighten up our defenses? And treat the one to whom we owe everything as if he were an unwelcomed, unwanted intruder. The parable warns that sometimes the ones who love God most treat God exactly like that. To understand the background and the context of this, you have to understand that Jesus was drawing upon another parable from Isaiah. He was drawing on this prophetic word of Isaiah about the vineyard of God. And so we'll hear these words and it'll help bring some of this into context and maybe clarify some of the meaning. Where the prophet says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded rotten grapes. Now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? That when I expected to yield good grapes... Why did it yield rotten grapes? And what I will tell you, what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a wasteland. It shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the people of Judah are his cherished garden. He expected justice, but saw bloodshed. Righteousness, 
but heard a cry. There's an obvious connection here between these two parables, and the people hearing Jesus would have heard that connection, and the connection has caused some over the years to assume that the wicked tenants in the parable are the Jewish people themselves. Uh, God sent them prophets, old and new, Isaiah, Jeremiah in the Old Testament, all the way up to John the Baptist in the New Testament, and they persecuted and they rejected every single one. And now God, the owner of the vineyard, has sent God's own son who they will also reject and despise. What do you think he will do with them? Now this is certainly one possible interpretation of the parable. But I don't like it. I don't know about you, but I don't like it, first of all, because it's one that has been used to justify bad behavior toward Jewish people over the years. I think we can all allow our minds to wrap themselves around that. And second of all, because on closer examination, the parable seems to be, this interpretation of the parable seems to be one that Jesus clearly refutes. Did you notice in verse 45? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Now you and I might be standing in the crowd listening, and we might all say the same thing. We might hear Jesus' parable, which is meant to disturb and disorient us in our own lives, and we might have said to ourselves also, he's talking about us. He's talking about us. We might feel the conviction and say, he's talking about us. Any person in that crowd might have said he's talking about us. But what the gospel writer clearly says is that the chief priests and the Pharisees heard the parable and they knew he was talking about them. Jesus was talking about them. In other words, the criticism of the parable is not against the cultivators of the vineyard. Or is against the cultivators of the vineyard and not the vineyard itself. The criticism is aimed at the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the leadership, which is exactly why they went off after the parable, aimed at treating Jesus exactly like the wicked tenants treated the son of the vineyard owner. Like an intruder in his own land. Now why would they do that? I mean, it makes a lot more sense in real life than it actually does in the story because we know the context of the gospel, right? We know the story of Jesus. We know where this whole thing has been and where it's heading. Knowing the story, we're not surprised that the chief priests and the Pharisees decide to go off and conspire together against this upstart carpenter who'd become a rabbi, stepping on their turf, challenging their authority, messing with their livelihood. That makes sense. But why would tenant farmers repeatedly bite the hand that is feeding them in this way. Why would they do that? Well, perhaps because of what they could benefit from it. It seems that there were laws in these days that indicated occupation could also eventually equal possession. So that if the possession of the current landholders hadn't been disputed for a certain amount of time, they could claim true ownership. So perhaps the owner of the vineyard has been absent for some time. 
Perhaps they realized what was happening here and they were coming up on the verge of that timetable and they thought, you know what, if we could just hold him at bay, if we could just hold his servants at bay by whatever means necessary, then we can claim ownership over this land ourselves. And then perhaps they thought that when they were visited after two sets of servants by the son, that the reason the landowner himself wasn't coming is because he must already be dead. If he's already dead, perhaps the son is coming to claim his rightful claim on the land, but if they were to kill him, then the vineyard and all that came with it would be officially theirs. And now we're getting to the heart of the matter. These farmers didn't own the land. They weren't even independent contractors. They were tenants or renters. They perhaps even might have been employees who the landowner had entrusted the land to. They were meant to be stewards of its life. It did not belong to them. But somewhere along the way, they either forgot this or they decided it wasn't enough. You ever ever been in a situation where what you had didn't seem like it was enough? It's mine, they said. It's all mine. And they began to claim everything as their own. Their their effort, their work, uh, the production, even the whole scene of their work life, the vineyard itself. Terrible. And yeah, we do this too. This scene plays out again and again and again in our lives and in in Scripture on local stages and world stages. You may remember when the bubble burst on the housing market in 2008. We began to feel like the ones we trusted with our economy, the ones we trusted with our credit, the ones we trusted with our debt hadn't been holding up their end of the bargain. Felt like they were failing us, at least partly because somewhere along the way, they started to believe that our economy was theirs, not just to steward, but to own. This scene keeps playing out. It's a, it's a scene that plays out again and again, not only in the national level of our leaders we've asked to steward, our government and our economy, but it plays out in our local lives, our personal lives as well. It plays out every time we forget that this, this vineyard, every time we forget that this life, every time we forget that this family, every time we forget that this home, every time we forget that this church, these resources, these people, every time we forget that all of this doesn't belong to us, It's not ours, no matter how much we believe it is. And it doesn't work right if we participate with it as if it is ours. It doesn't exist right if we defend it as if it's ours. This is not the way it was designed to be. No, it only works as it was intended to work if we work with it in the way it was entrusted to us. As stewards, not owners. It's not ours. None of the, it doesn't belong to us. And when we forget that, we find ourselves treading on dangerous ground, hunching back on our heels, ready to defend what's ours against anyone and anything. Anyone. Anyone that might try to take it from us. 
Anyone, even God's messengers, even God's son, anyone, anyone who might try to take it away. And we see this in this parable. And it's startling. But honestly, it's not the most startling thing that we see in this parable. No, for those who hung around long enough, there was something even more startling. The most startling thing in this parable, remember who the landowner is. The most startling thing in this parable is the seeming stupidity of the landowner, right? The landowner who, after receiving word that the first set of servants had been slaughtered by the tenants, went on to send a second set of servants who was slaughtered by the tenants, and then decided after their deaths that the only thing that seemed reasonable at this point was to send not an army, but his own son, assuming they might treat him differently. This scene repeats itself in life and in Scripture. You may remember the story of Hosea and Gomer in the Old Testament. It's one of the most disturbing stories in all of Scripture. It's a bit explicit, a bit disturbing, so I'm not going to describe it in detail with small children in the room, but the gist of it is that it was a parable acted out before Israel as an example to Israel, and the parable was the marriage relationship of Hosea the prophet and his unfaithful wife. So they got married, and then she was unfaithful. She was unfaithful again and again and again and again and again and again. And each time, Hosea took her back. And this was the point. The marriage of Hosea and Gomer was a parable that symbolized the marriage between God and God's people. And it does still. Not just Israel, but all of us. All of us. God loves us. God loves you. God loves us. God is committed to us. And God even trusts us. How crazy is that? And in light of all that, we sin and we sin and we sin and we break the covenant and we break the covenant and we break the covenant and we turn away and we turn away and we turn away and we run away and we run away and we run away and we prove again and again and again and again and again that we are untrustworthy. That we are not going to be faithful. That we are not going to be good stewards. No, instead, we're just going to treat all of this like it's all mine. And if anyone tries to take it from me, if anybody tries to take my life from me, if anybody tries to take my privilege from me, my comfort from me, if anybody tries to take my routine from me, if anybody tries to take away my way of being from me, if anyone tries to take away my claim on myself and my life, whether it be a servant of God, a son of God, or the Spirit of God, we will fight and we will fight and we will fight and we will fight. And what we see here is that again and again and again, God sees us staking our claim on God's property in this world and on God's resources in this world. And instead of taking it back by force, which would seem reasonable, and which sometimes we would like for God to do, instead of doing that, God sends God's servants to remind us who we are 
and to remind us of whose we are. God sees us, comes in the midst of this, sees us, and sees us in in response to this tightening up. Sees us refusing to listen. Sees us defending God's territory as if it was our own, sometimes even by violent means. And God responds to this again and again and again. And here's the gospel. God responds to this again and again and again by risking the lives of more good messengers. By risking the life even of God's Son, all the while hoping and believing that one day, perhaps one day, perhaps one day we might just let down our defenses. Perhaps one day we might remember who we are and whose we are. Perhaps one day we might remember and really embrace that all of this All that we have and all that we are is not a right. It's not an entitlement. But it is a gift of God's grace. All of it. All of it. In this life, we are always and in every way imperfect tenants who are also imperfect guests who have been invited not only to steward, but also to sit at God's table. God's table of goodness, mercy, and everlasting love. At the table, we remember how on the night Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, He made space for everyone. For everyone, right? On the night that Jesus was handed over to suffering and death, He made space for those who would desert Him and deny Him and betray Him. On the night He was handed over to suffering and death, He broke the bread and He looked at all of them and said, This is My body which is broken for you. Take, eat. Do this in remembrance of Me. And on that same night, He took the cup And as he poured it out and gave thanks for it, he said, This is my body, this is my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from this, all of you. Do this in remembrance of me.